Welcome to Kashras on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashras Magazine. And I hope everyone enjoyed the beautiful Yom Tov. Uh, maybe it was a little different than usual. Simchas Torah in some places, and uh, Yom Tov in general. Uh, the different things that had to be done in order to fulfill requirements of the law and to be able to do a safe davening, and everybody should have that in mind, whatever their arrangements are for the future as well. It's an important responsibility that we all have for each other's health and for our own health, and that's a responsibility because we're a, only a gizbar, we're only taking care of our bodies, and we have to make sure that they're in proper order. Uh, tonight I'd like to concentrate on... Uh, a number of issues, uh, I call it from out of the frying pan into the fire. We're going to discuss a few shilas that came up recently regarding frying pans. And uh, we'll also be able to tie in some other things uh, some, uh, in terms of halacha and shilas that people ask uh, of us. And then we'll be, go on to some of the topics of the day, some of the uh, new issues that are occurring as we go, as we talk. Uh, first, I'd like to say that it's important when you deal with a question halacha that you shouldn't be a chacham. Don't don't paskin the shaila yourself. Don't think of the answer. Don't put the words in the mouth of the, the rabbi. Don't misinterpret the words of the rabbi. Ask the question openly, honestly, and whatever he tells you to do, that's what you do. Unfortunately, many people come with prejudices, with different ideas, and we're going to discuss a little bit about that tonight. The uh, introduction I'd like to give to this topic is something I might have mentioned before. I'm pretty sure that I did. Uh, it's a it, it's it's a question that came up many years ago by a dear friend, a Talmud of mine, a Chavrus of mine, a, a friend, and he was uh, for a short time at least he was a mashkiach. I think when he first got married or whatever he learned, he left the yeshiva. He got smicha and he went out into the world and became a mashkiach, the first job, and then he went into something else. As a mashkiach, unfortunately, he has very good eyesight, a very, very good head, and he, he found out that in this Fleshik restaurant that we're using milchik and margarine. And he studied it and found out and checked it out, and sure enough, the percentage of milk in the margarine it was probably whey or something of that nature, was more than 1.6%, and therefore it wasn't bottle, and therefore it was really milchix, and therefore the frying pans that were using this margarine were treif. I think it was only one frying pan. Uh, they had a few frying pans. They had three frying pans, and only one of them he had was used on, and he had to call the rabbi up and tell him that we had this frying pan that now became treif. So the rabbi told him, uh, throw out the frying pan. Now, we were discussing this in the yeshiva because somehow or other he was there. Um, I don't remember exactly how it was, uh, whether it was while he was working, it was after he was working, but he mentioned this in the shir uh, with the Rav Zatzal, Rav Zim and Zatzal. And Rav Zimman had a shita, which is not like most people. Most people say that if you use a frying pan and it becomes treif, you're going to have to kosher it with libun. Libun is almost impossible for us to do today. Uh, the real libun is to use a blowtorch, uh, which is forbidden and it's dangerous. And Maybe some mashkicham still use it somehow, but it's not something that you should get your hands on and you wouldn't know how to handle it anyway. You wouldn't do it properly. And then, or else, maybe uh, you could put it into, um, you could put a fire underneath it and cover it over with tin foil or something like that and make a hole to do and you, until it gets red hot and who knows what's going to happen to your building. I, I was observing one time um, in Mashkiach, and I think I also mentioned this uh, with, with Rabbi Jorvel, Rabbi Jorvel, Avram Jorvel from the OU. At that time, he was working for the OK. Um, over the years, he worked for the OK and the OU and for Broyers. I don't know if there's anybody else. Uh, Cuffcake could be also. 
not sure. In any event, um, he was working at that time for the OK, and they were doing a supervision for Pesach on a bakery. The bakery was being switched over from chametz to Pesach, which is a big deal, because I mean, you want to make it, you want you you want kosher of Pesach, and you want kosher, and you certainly want a kosher of Pesach. So you're going to have to do a major transformation of a bakery. So we went in there, and uh, different things required different methods of koshering. First thing he did is he walked over to the uh, to these big vats. Which they're called steam jacket kettles. I'm not even sure these are steam jacket kettles, but they were huge vats. And he walked over to them and he put his finger around the rim. Now the rim is like when it comes over the top. So right underneath that, right in the edge, there's a place where the metal tucks under and it comes close to the other metal. And there's like a little space in between, and he ran his finger around it, or maybe he put a little piece of paper or a twig around it, I don't know exactly what he used, and then he showed to everybody there that it wasn't cleaned properly. So he says, we couldn't, we can't kosher this today, you're going to have to go back, and you're going to have to make sure it's cleaned properly, and then we can kosher it. He was working together with one of the Hamish Ashkochas. He was representing the OK, and the Hamish Ashkochas sent a mashkiach, who was a very qualified individual, but had no experience in this area, and Rabbi Juravel was more or less training him. That's what I saw. In any event, uh, he, he put on, he, he uh, you know, deferred, we couldn't do that. Next, we went to the, uh, to these, uh, re- what they call revolving ovens. It's, uh, it's an interesting thing to watch. It looks like a, a, like a merry-go-round or something, or it looks like a, so it's a Ferris wheel, where it goes around up and down and up and down, and each, le- each uh, level has a, you know, a tray, and the, the food goes on there, a cake or a, or a bread, and that revolves around the heat source so that you get a very even uh, cooking, baking, so it's, it comes out fully baked on all sides, and that's uh, called the revolving oven. Very, very hard thing to kosher. You have to actually kosher those trays at it, where the uh, thing rests, where the food rests. So he put on some coals, charcoals, lit them up, and they were burning away. Now, they had racks. The racks were huge racks, and these racks, were, there were many of them, he decided he's going to kosher them all at once. Now, how do you do that? He took all these racks, he lined them up, he put uh, charcoal underneath it. He had told the man to buy charcoal that didn't have any uh, lighter fluid in it, that it should just be regular charcoal. Unfortunately, they came in with charcoal that had lighter fluid in it. So that all you do is touch the match to it, and boom, it goes up. Okay, he had only that, so he used that and put it down, underneath the, uh, these, the, these different uh, trays. And a fire was going underneath it, and that was going to burn through these trays. And he covered it over and whatever, how, how he did it, I'm trying to remember exactly in my mind, probably covered it over with some tinfoil, whatever it was, and this was on the ground. And he lit it, and the flame went up and up and up. And the flame went almost to the ceiling. And the ceiling, I noticed that there were exposed wires in this building. And I don't mean, uh, you know, that, that it wasn't, you could see the wire. No, the wires were exposed. And I said to myself, this place can blow up. Who knows what's going to happen? And I ran out of the building, and he stayed in. He felt it was confident, he had confidence, but it was going very, very high up, very close to the top, and actually the, the paint was melting. This, I, I'm not imagining this. This is what I saw. In any event, it didn't blow up. Thank God that that day was a safe day, and uh, everything got taken care of. But that is the way that you kosher something that needs libun, you use real fire. So this is something we can't do today. So how are we going to kosher? So my Rebbe, Rav Zimmel, held the frying pan could be koshered in hot water, what we call hagola. Not Libun, but Hagola. That's a very low level of koshering, but it's required, and for, for most things we do that. But not for something that's on the fire. He held that since we use a lot of oil, he felt that, that the halacha is that it is not considered to be, uh, 
using the fire, but it's sort of a kind of cooking. That's what he held about the, uh, about the frying pan. Most other people, Paskin, that you have to kasher a frying pan with libun, with actually fire, etc. The only exception is you could use a self-cleaning oven, because a self-cleaning oven heats up till about 900 degrees or more, and, uh, in, and, and, and a regular oven only heats till five, five, 500 or 550, but the, but the uh, self-cleaning does till 900 degrees or more. That's considered sufficient to be like a blowtorch, like using an actual fire to kasher, what we call Ibn Gamor. So that's uh, a difference in halacha, but the Rav's, that's all held, you could kasher with water, with the, like hagala, like you other things, but most people don't pask in that way. In any event, the hashkacha on this particular place where my friend was working, told, we figured what happened was he held you need to make a libun, and since the only way to make libun is use a blowtorch or put on a fire, and they thought that the mashkiach's health and safety was worth more than any frying pan, and so he told him to toss it out. And I told him, this was in the shear, with the rubs outside, I told him, I said, why did you have to throw it out? You could have taken it home and used it. Because chad betray bottle, one and two is nullified. There were three frying pans. He didn't know which one it was. And in and, and which case, um, you know, you, you could take out one. And, and in his case, he threw it away. But we said, and I said in the shears, but the rubs outside agreed with me, that you could have just kashered it with the hot boiling water. And that would have been sufficient. In any event, it was thrown out. That's the story, and that's a frying pan, and that's the machlaikas about how you have to kasher a frying pan. So here are two shallows that I was asked, and I want you to hear the way it went, because this is uh, an interesting thing for a rabbi, how you handle it and, uh, and how people react. So the first shiloh was uh, there was a frying pan that... Uh, uh, that there th- was he- heated up, uh, it was, it was, I'm sorry, that became treif, and subsequently becoming treif, the people called me up, and I told them, uh, you know, that you have to kosher it, and I was trying to say that there's an issue about whether how you kosher it, and the woman said she knows how to kosher it, you have to kosher it with libun, and uh, so, that, so that's what she wants to use of fire. So I said, okay, but you know, but you could put it into a self-cleaning oven, and that would also be good enough. She got back to me, it was this week, and she said to me that uh, she used something, I don't know, some contraption, I couldn't figure it out exactly, I couldn't describe it to you because I never saw it. She tried to describe some kind of contraption she had, and that this thing heats it up to 400 degrees. So I explained to the lady that we need to have something better than 400 degrees. The, the ovens that you have, the regular oven that you have, is 500 or 550. We wouldn't even recommend that. We would have recommended the, the, the hot boiling water, the, what we call hagola. But if you're going to use an, an oven, you really have to use a self-cleaning oven. That's what I told her originally. But instead, she felt that the right way is with fire, and she had some fire that was in a contraption. I don't remember exactly how it was described to me, and she said it hits 400 degrees. I said 400 degrees is not acceptable. You must put it into a self-cleaning oven. So I dealt with it on the level where she's coming from because she feels that that's the right way, but she doesn't understand exactly how to do it. So that had to be taken care of. A different question came up. This one came up today. Somebody came to me uh, with a question. It's a whole long story. It's a very interesting story. They came to me with a frying pan. Uh, the frying pan has a history. It started out as a. Uh, I don't. I think it started out as a milchika frying pan, and then it became treif, and they put it into a self-cleaning oven, which you know takes hours. They put it into a self-cleaning oven. And it then, for some reason, it was hot, and it was on the fire, um, and they took it off the fire, 
and it was lying down, and then they had a Fleischiger pan, Fleischiger frying pan, and the person was making meat, and they had oil in there, and the oil spritzed from the, um, fr- from the meat frying pan into what now is a, called a part of a frying pan, and it made it fleshix. A certain amount of it f- spritzed in there, and the question was, what do you do? She wanted to know if she has to go ahead and put it through with the self-cleaning oven again. So if she would have been able to tell me exactly where... Anyway, the point was she felt that the, the frying pan, the, the parva one that had gotten trafe and we kashered it, that frying pan she felt was still hot from use on the fire, and she felt that then when the spritz came to it, 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 it affected it. So the question was whether we could just make hagola on it because she wanted to get it back to being parva, uh, she wanted to eventually make it milchiks. So now she now it became fleshiks, and she wants to know making getting it milchiks. What does she have to do? So I told her that all we have to do is put it into the um, in, in, into hot boiling water. Wait twenty four hours, and then put it into hot boiling water. In any eno ben yomo keli that hasn't been used for twenty four hours, it doesn't matter if it's milchiks or fleshiks or parva not used for 24 hours, and you put it into, and you heat the water up, and you put have a cover on top, and then you take it off, and then you stick this frying pan in. You can't put it all in at once, probably, because it's the size, it's probably hard to get it in, but as long as you get in that part that you have to kosher, it's going to be okay, and uh, that's how we told her. And that based upon a couple of things I'm not going to go through now, and uh, there's an interesting question about when when uh, they used to have candles made out of, or they used to have oil was made, I mean, that wasn't really, it was fats, lard, and they used to use that for fi- for for uh, candles, and, uh, you know, for, for, for made, they lit it, and uh, burnt, and they, sometimes it spritzed onto the food, or onto the kalim, and there's a Shailin Halacha about that, so we discussed that with her, and explained that in this particular case, all you're going to need to do is to take it and do it in Hagala. Could have been done that way originally. Uh, probably she, she didn't, I don't think she asked me, and probably she felt that it had to have Libun, because most people teach it that way. The Rav Zatzal was, was more, a little bit more unique in his psak about the uh, frying pan only requiring Libun, uh, uh, Hagala. Now, to understand that a little bit better, I must tell you that there's one thing that comes up very often in catering, uh, the problem uh, that many caterers have is that the chafing dishes that are used in the um, hotels have to be a certain type, especially the fancy hotels. They have a specific type of chafing dish that has to be used. They don't let you use whatever you want. You can't use tin foil, and you can't use uh, something that doesn't match with the design of the stands. And the question is, uh, cashering them, so most people, what they, uh, most of the, the from uh, caterers will take along their own chafing dishes because they feel that the chafing dish has to have it has to have libon on it. Because what happens with a chafing dish is, if you remember, you, you're coming there at the beginning of the meat. There, there's a uh, the smorgasbord is let's say an hour long, and the fire is pretty strong underneath it. So after about 20 minutes, this stuff starts to burn. It starts to the, all the liquid is dried out, and very often it will get uh, like burnt, sort of like a fried and like a frying pan. So for that reason, they want to kasher these with libun, and it's very very difficult to do. And for that reason, they want to have their own shaving dishes that are kosher, and that's what they try to do at these at these uh, fairs. So many of the poskim are telling them to make it a uh, a libun a real libun. Uh, in, in, in order to make the uh, chafing dish kosher. The, the point is, I don't know how about the chafing dish, but the point is with a uh, frying pan and, and also with the chafing dish, the intention is not to burn it. You know, all women, men, whoever cooks in the house, they burn also, but every single pot has been burnt once or twice or even five or ten times. But that doesn't mean that it needs libun it, what needs libun is when it's that's the most tash, when it's normally used that way. The intention is not to burn, 
That's the whole point of putting something on the uh, frying pan. So yes, maybe with a with one of those frying pans that you don't have, they're nonstick or they just spray and it's not, there's nothing there. So maybe then we would want to say you'd have to make you have a problem with libun. Um, it's very difficult to do on some of these surfaces, and uh, this is something you'll have to ask your own rav if it ever comes up. But there's an interesting question about the frying pan. My point was about the people are paskening for themselves. I'm telling them in many cases that they don't need to to to, uh, to, to kasha more than hagala, and they're still anyway going out because that's where they were trained in their house. Uh, they were told you have to make a, a libun on these on the frying pan, and if they are doing that, are they doing it properly? So that's the issue. You know, sometimes the chumrah is a cool, etc. So I, I advise people when you ask the rav. Tell him the whole story. Listen to what he says. Do what he says, and don't try to, uh, you know, be a chacham and do it differently because you remember something, you think something. Usually, the rav knows more in terms of the halacha than you do, even though you had a good training. Um, should you take a kula if the rabbi is more makel than your other rabbi? That's a different question. I'm not going to deal with it today. Now. I want to tell you that uh, a certain story that came up, a similar story, um, which is just indicative of the idea of people doing on their own. Somebody contacted me, uh, this is not from this week, it's from a little bit earlier, and they uh, told me a whole story, and I found out, I said, you know, what does that mean? You, what did you do? And they, I found out that they used a non- uh, and we call Eno Ben Yomo Kaili, something that hadn't been used for 24 hours, whether it was a milchika one or a fleshika one, they used it with the opposite thing. And they said, it can't answer it because this is also a nut by nut. So this is not really meat, it's only a, a meat Kaili. So I'm using a milchika spoon that hasn't been used for 24 hours. So that's not appropriate. It's not appropriate to take ice cream out with a fleshika spoon because it's not going to become treif. It's not appropriate to take an eno ben yomo keli and use it in a ben yomo situation even though there is no meat or milk, actual meat or milk there. I tried to explain to the, the lady that the, uh, the Ramor holds that the ben yomo keli will make the other, the, the eno ben yomo keli not kosher and has to be koshered. So that, let's say, for example, you have a soup in a fleshika pot that was used for fleshika today, and the soup is 100% parva, but you stirred it with a milchika spoon. According to the Ramor, you're going to need to kasha that spoon, even though the, the, the spoon wasn't used for 24 hours. The soup is kosher. The, the pot is kosher, but the spoon has to be koshered. Again, if the pot was ben yomo fleshiks, and or vice versa, of course. The Ben Yomo Fleshiks, it had had been used in the last twenty-four hours for hot meat, and now you're cooking up a parva thing. There is no meat here at all, and you use a milchika spoon which was not used for twenty-four hours for milchiks, you will have to kasha that spoon according to the Ramor. It's called Minaga Ramor. A lot of people don't know that, but that's called the Minaga Ramor. So I told her, you, you, that's not what we do. You can't use something and make it treif and use the wrong thing just because it won't make the other one treif. And I see that people are, as I said, they're trying to paskin for themselves. It would do much better to ask the Rav. Usually he isn't so t- tough as they think. Now I'm going to go on to some other topics. But I'm going to mention now, if I'm going to go from a I'm going from the uh, the insane to the sublime. This is uh, very disconcerting to me to share this information with you, but I still feel I must do it, even though some people feel that. What are you talking about this stuff in the radio? Uh, people, you know, our people, okay, our people. But we don't always understand what something means. So I'm going to read to you, I'm going to leave out the names, I hope I'll leave the names out, 
try to leave them out. There's a, an, 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 a certification called Echo Kosher Certification. Okay, I think that a lot of us understand echo means, you know, that's, that it's dealing with, uh, with echo kashras is a ecological kashras. It's not real kashras. Okay. Here it says here, it's an organization calls themselves echo kosher, training in the laws of kashrut and echo kashrut as a mashkiach, mashkicha. In other words, people are going to go out and say they were trained as a mashkiach or mashkicha by this organization. I'll read to you a few words. This program is for those who want to be certified as a mashkiach, mashkicha in both the laws of kashrut and the ever-evolving ecological sensitivity called eco-kashrut. I go on. This, with this certification, you will be qualified to kasher and supervise a kitchen in your congregation, retreat sites, hotel kitchens, hillel kitchens, summer camps, and more. You may also, by using our Echo Kosher logo, certify local food products. Certified, now you can be a hashkocha that meet both traditional kosher and echo kosher standards. The course of instruction is 24 sessions, two hours each, on Zoom. Uh, There's reading materials, and a guided practicum will be developed to meet your specific circumstances. The cost was $1,800. That's what they're going to charge you. Now, listen to the rest of it. I'm going to skip his name. I can't, I can't bring, bring myself to discuss it. Uh, he, this person, uh, what he represents, etc. He calls himself a rabbi and a PhD. He says uh, he's uh, the mashkiach of Ohala Ruach Haaretz Aleph Ordination Program. And this is who, who he is. Now, I looked him up. And this man and his wife are both called rabbis. In the listing on the, on the internet, she comes first and he comes second. He's, she's the rabbi first and he's the rabbi second. And what they do is that they build themselves as spirituality, mentorship, transformation. And they run an interfaith pilgrimage to Israel. And of course, their certification, their their hashkacha, I'm sorry, their ordination is not an orthodox ordination, to, uh, to be sure. In addition, this uh, gentleman who calls himself a rabbi, he has an, an additional woman who works with him and signs the certification together with him. They give out a certificate of kashrut and echo kosher. I'm very happy they put the word echo kosher together with the kashrut, and that they use the word kashrut. It also gives away a little bit, and of course, their names. The woman's name is a rabbi. She's a woman rabbi, and her name comes first. And she's called rabbinic administrator and supervisor of kashrut. kashrut. And he is called the mashkiach, the man who actually runs it from what I can see. And it's, uh, what can I tell you? Um, this is what, I read a few words from there. Everything in the premises is deemed kosher according to halacha, kedat ukedin. One may eat here with confidence as to the kashrut. That's what they give out. Everything is kedat ukedin. That's everything according to halacha. That's what they claim. And that, that's one of their hashkachos that they give. Um, the woman, in this particular case, who is a rabbi, she is a, um, she, she's been ordained by Reconstructionists, and she's practicing as a rabbi. Okay, so that gives you a little idea what you can get for $1,800. That's what I talked about, uh, you know, on one extreme. Now to the sublime, only because I, I, I must get into something that I can put my head around, I want to share with you there's one of the beautiful things that was created that, that has been that has just come up. I just saw it on the internet, 
and I'm hoping, looking forward to seeing it in writing. The Hamodiah magazine uh, newspaper, which I, uh, I, I, I think very highly of, the, of their, their quality, they did a story. I mean, maybe I'll get a permission to reprint it if I got a chance. It's a, it's a story about the Eid HaKaredes in Eretz Israel, and it talks about what we call the Badats. The word Badats means based in Tzedek, and it can be used by anybody, any way. There's so many people that call themselves a based in Tzedek. There may be one rabbi, he may not even be a rabbi, and he calls himself a based in Tzedek. But the original Badats, and the one that everybody calls the Badats, is the Badats of the Eidah HaKaredes in Yerushalayim. It's a very high standard of kashrus. And I want to share with you a few lines from the article that uh, is being put to, as was put together by Hamodia. This is just a little snippets here. And this is something that the, what I'm going to talk about now applies to other things we're going to be mentioning tonight. And uh, it's one of the really important parts of, of Yiddishkeit, of Kashrus. The kosher insignia of the Ada is often the only mark distinguishing between that which is kosher and that which is treif that can be two products from the same company that look exactly alike on the outside. But one is kosher and one is not. Okay, that's something very, very important to understand. It's sad. It's something that I wish they would all work towards changing, but we can't always get it that way. Yes, if you take a private label product, uh, you know, uh, Pashkas buys something and has Pashkas name on it, so Pashka is going to say whatever it wants on the outside. It's going to look different than the other people's. But very often what happens is the Hashkach has only so much control and it has to control the line for a certain amount of time and it can't control it on a regular basis and therefore you could have the same product, same name, same pro- place produced, and one is kosher and one is treif. It's sad, but it's part of our life. There can be two products from the same company that look exactly like on the outside. One is kosher and one is not. During our visit to the Ada Kashrus headquarters, by the way, I spent time there myself, it was about 20 years ago, actually more than 20 years ago, I spent some serious time with the Ada. Uh, I spent almost a whole summer going around in Eretz Israel with the Ada HaKaredes. It was a, it was a, a, a life-changing uh, uh, position for me. I had uh, so much I learned from it, uh, and, and I got very close to the people who worked there and understand how, you know, how high quality their hashkoch is. So during our visit, this, I'm, again, I'm reading from uh, the Hamodia, this is not me. During our visit to the Ada Kashrus headquarters, we came to understand that this open secret must always be remembered. To avoid mistakes, make sure you see a badatz insignia on whatever you buy. And I'd say, if you're in the States, anything else you want, any hashkoch you want, make sure it's on there, and don't be surprised to go to the store. So many people telling me, I didn't realize it, I bought this, I didn't understand, I ordered online, I did this, they, they told me it's, they replaced it with something else. This goes on all the time. So you always have to look at the package. Now here's an example. Here's a small example. One of the Ada's mashkichim, Reb M, once received a call from a man who had purchased an eight-pack of yogurt manufactured by a certain company. The product wrapping sported a legitimate badatz seal, but when he later looked at each individual seal, he saw to his horror that four of them did not have the stamp. So there were eight there, an eight-pack of yogurt, four with the Badatz label and four without it. The outer box had it. I asked him, this is Rabbi M, I asked him how he came to check the individual containers. The Mashkiach related, and his answer totally surprised me. He said that he felt a different flavor in one of the cups. (laughs) He felt a different flavor in one of the cups. In other words, he ate them until he first found out. The man quickly checked each container and found that the only difference was that some of them would not stamp with the Badat seal, and yet they tasted different. 
we see that sometimes one can actually taste the difference between a product that is under Badat's supervision and one that is not, the Mashkiach concluded. That's an interesting story, and I don't know what it means, but it's just uh, an interesting thing. Unfortunately, uh, I've told on the air, a good friend of mine was traveling back to Israel, and they had served him a non-kosher meal that had an OU on it, and uh, came with a, the seal of a, uh, of, a, of a well-known catering facility, and still in all, it was a non-kosher meal from beginning to end, and uh, the airlines, who was the one responsible for the error, uh, gave him a very small s- sum of money to you know, placate him, and uh, unfortunately, that was as far as it went, and therefore, protection is... Isn't, isn't there because it was a significant amount of money. And uh, unfortunately, we're always, we always have to be extremely, extremely careful what we're eating, especially going up in the, the 30,000 feet in the air. Uh, let me give you another tidbit from this article, which is coming out from the, from the uh, Hamodia mag- newspaper, and maybe this week or next week. I assume it's coming out right away. The mashkichim of the Eidacharedis don't certify a product as kosher if they don't know all its secrets, even the most closely guarded ones, which every respected food manufacturing plant has. I don't know if you know, but the, uh, one of the best-kept secrets was always about Coca-Cola, the secret ingredient, right? So there's a question, do they really know what's in there or not? The, uh, actually, the Badatz doesn't make Coca-Cola, but, but the uh, Rabbi Landau from B'nai Brak does, and he does know what the secret ingredient is. They give it out to certain people under certain circumstances. Originally, I don't know what he actually does know, but I, I, that's what he was say. He claimed, what the previous one, he, he, uh, Rabbi Landau, he, he claimed that he did know which... Um, which the certificate, which the actual ingredients are, uh, the, the OU told me when they took over the uh, the Coca Cola that they they didn't really know what was inside the Coca Cola, but they knew that the ingredients that we used were all kosher, because they had all the uh, inventory checked and all the inventory was kosher, but the actual um, ingredients. And the way the product is made, they didn't know. So there may have been false ingredients lying around for, so that no one really know the actual way it's made. Uh, th- so that's how they explained to me. They knew, they knew that all the ingredients in the plant were kosher. They did not know uh, how they made it. It's some kind of secret mumbo-jumbo. I don't know exactly how it's made. And I, I, I guess that um, Rabbi Landau may have been in the same boat. Well, maybe he did really know because he claimed that he did know the actual ingredients. And uh, whether he did or he didn't, he took uh, very, uh, very great care to make sure that it was up to his standards, which was a very high standard. Okay, so but back to our situation over here. Um, the mashkichim from the Eidacharedis have to know all the secrets of the company. The plant managers must divulge these secrets to the badats, without hiding a single detail. When they see they're dealing with experts and scholars who sometimes know the material better than they do, materially means that, of course, the way it's made and uh, the ingredients that are used, etc., they have no choice but to yield and tell all, unless they're willing to dispense with the chance to receive the coveted certification. In other words, the, the Badats will not certify you unless you answer all their questions and give them all the information. When necessary, the mashkiach will even go to the lab with the specified raw materials to check whether the results he came, comes up with match those claimed by the company. And until they do, the product is not Badat certified. So in other words, they check up on the company sometimes too. Now there's a famous rabbi over there, Rabbi Binder or Binder, I'm not sure how you pronounce the name. Uh, he's uh, an English-speaking gentleman, and obviously that's one of the main people they were speaking with there at the Badats. 
Among the very many items on Harav Binder's desk, I see two capsules produced by two rival international companies, both with the Badatz Kashra seal. Now that is interesting. That means the Badatz knows the secrets of A and the secrets of B, and they both gave it out. Both companies have told us how their product is made, he says. This is the secret of our success, even though in general they keep their trade secrets far from the public eye, and certainly far from that of their competitors, they know that we will not certify them without knowing precisely what goes into their products. And they also know that we're trusted not to divulge them to their competitors. Very interesting little piece of, of information. I'll just share with you another thing or two. Uh, I just, I think, just as one more thing from this article, which is going to be out in Hamodia. I, I have the whole thing here, so I don't, I don't need to buy it, but I, I, mean, I get the paper anyway. But uh, you, you should be able to enjoy it in the next week or so. Now, they talk about fish, and they spoke to Rabbi Weiss, who said that fish are bred in Ada-supervised pools, can be eaten without fear of worms. However, there are fish from the Kinneret that because of the nature of the water have parasites. It's therefore important to make sure only to buy fish with kashra certification and to avoid buying fish with the, from the Kinneret that are widely sold in Tiveria. I want you to know that Rabbanut in Eretz Israel takes very seriously the issue of insects, both in vegetables and in fish. And uh, it's something that in this country, unfortunately, most of the kashras agencies are not concerned with. Uh, I'm going to now share with you some of the things that are going on in today's world. Um, principally, there's two areas that are hot. One is in Poland, and the other one is in, you know, in uh, the United Arab Emirates. Uh, and also, I'm going to share another thing with you uh, about a problem that came up. But let's, let's talk first about Poland. Now, Poland is, is a hotbed, and it's very important for the entire European community because Poland has been a distributor of, of kosher meat to many places, including Israel, and a lot of the communities in Europe are having difficulty getting meat Forget about the, the, the COVID-19 problem, but uh, in general, the sources are drying up and the price must be going up uh, regularly. And certainly, if Poland drops out from producing, it would be a very, very, very big loss because they do a major amount of the production. So what happened is they came out with a bill that they're working on and it's passed several levels, and it's now almost uh, the law. And it's a very, very scary thing, because it would ban the export of kosher meat. They would allow it for domestic use, but not for, for, trans for, uh, for, for, for the rest of uh, for the distribution and exporting. And this is a, um, one of these bills that was set up by the, uh, the, 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 the Animal Welfare and Humanitarian Treatment of Animals organizations, and they uh, try very much to force the government to uh, do away with the kosher and halal shrita and the halal uh, production of meat. And this is, of course, right now they're allowing it for, the, for domestic use, but... But to go to Israel um, and to other places, they want to forbid it. So at this time, this is a hot topic, and something just came up. It seems mink, because it's not just a, a law that's protecting uh, the killing of the animals in a humane way, which means by, uh, by, by giving them... Uh, uh, you know, by, by, by giving them some um, stunning before the shrita, it's also a bill to protect against the mink and the different animals that are slaughtered for their uh, skins. And that is something which is splitting the country. It's really, really hot. 
In other words, the meat thing, they can forgo. But the mink, that's, that's real stuff already. Then you're, now you're talking about uh, women's clothes and you're talking about real money and uh, you're talking about uh, you know, something that hurts everybody. So they, they're, they're, there is a possibility that because of that, the bill might be squashed, which for temporary purposes, it might come back again. But I just read today from somebody on the, in the know that they say that uh, if it gets too hot, it'll just drop that part from the bill and they'll still go for the anti-shrita. So it's a very, very hot topic, and it's something that's uh, hurting the uh, Jewish community, not just in Poland, but all over uh, Europe, and will affect everybody, uh, including those in Israel, and hopefully some people will pick up the uh, slack if, they, if Poland drops out. Now, the hottest area, in, the, the wildest things are happening in the United Arab Emirates. I really was interested in this when, from the very beginning, and now it's just taking off. I remember when it first started, and the, uh, they were going to have a, well, it started, of course, with, the, with, with Jared Kushner coming, to, uh, coming there, and they're going to sign the documents with Israel, and they, they came for a meeting, and they had to have a glad kosher meal, and they got the OU, and uh, this uh, lady who, uh, Ellie's uh, kosher kitchen, so she uh, produced the food, and she's decided to go into producing food for hotels, and the hotels are signing up, and the travel agency in the, in, in the United Arab Emirates is, uh, behind, is backing this and, and, and asking all of the hotels to have kosher. And the biggest hotel in Dubai, and the tallest hotel in the world, like the tallest structure in the world, is, has had a sook in front of it this year, and has kosher meals, etc. And unfortunately, probably bring too many mixing of Jews and non-Jews together. But at least there's something happening with a positive sign for the Jewish people in that part of the world. Hopefully, it'll be good. Only good. Uh, but the, but the things are changing every day. When the OU started, they said that they're going to be the main hashgacha there in, in uh, Dubai and in, in United Arab Emirates. But I see right away, everyone jumped on the bandwagon. There was a Chabad rabbi, there was a, there was a, but there was a rabbi who was the chief rabbi of uh, some area there. And then there was, uh, then in South Africa, they're doing something. And in e- England, they're doing now. It's La Yehudim. Everybody's getting into this. I have a picture here of a gentleman, obviously Arab, wearing all the garb for the Arabs, working together with the mashkichim and the shoichtim at the first shechita in the United Arab Emirates, certified as kosher Dubai and halal. And uh, they shechted 25 chickens, 25, I'm sorry, 2,500 chickens in one week. And uh, it's a whole uh, story that was printed, very, very interesting uh, about that. And then... As I said a minute ago, they have the, the British kosher caterer now wants to go, has a, has to, wants to make a kosher kitchen in Dubai. Um, and this, it's called 1070 Kitchen. It's located in London, and they made a deal together with Blue Horizon to establish a kitchen that will supply hotels, restaurants, and tourist attractions. So Ellie's Kosher Kitchen now is a lot of competition. It's it's unbelievable how this thing is developing, and maybe it's uh, maybe it's all hype. Maybe it's not going to really be anything, and whether it's good or bad for the Jews, I can't tell you. But it definitely shows a um, the thrust, and, and and gives the feeling that at least when in one part of the world, in Poland and other parts, you know, they're 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 attacking the Jews and and they're trying to do away with Shrita, another part of the world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends an Yeshua that there may be more production and they're capable of producing in that country much, much food for not just for their country, but maybe to export as well. They're a very smart group over there in that country. And 
I, I, I think it's uh, where Hashem closes down one area, He opens up another area. We have to look and see how it all develops. Now, in, um, we mentioned about what they're doing in, in Dubai. So now here's a piece from the, uh, the, the, uh, the based in, in South Africa, the Union of Orthodox Synagogues of, South, of Johannesburg, wonderful organization, very wonderful Jew running it now, Dobby Goldstein, Rabbi Dobby Goldstein, a uh, wonderful person I've had connection with over the, while, over the last couple of years. Um, the, they're now mentioning that they, they're one of the largest catering operations serving more than 100 airlines, which is Emirates Flight Catering, is setting up United Arab Emirates' first kosher food production facility. Seems everybody's the first one, right? Okay, and it says that... Uh, the, the, this catering, Emirates Flight Catering, uh, entered a partnership with CCL Holdings, which is founded by uh, this Mr. Creel, which is uh, from, that's Mr. Creel is Ellie's Kosher Kitchen, and now they're, and there's going to be a partnership called Kosher Arabia, and the production is expected to begin January 2021. So we got another year I'm not in the year, a few months left that, uh, to, to find the production of this uh, facility. And this is uh, somehow, uh, and I know that the people in South Africa who are very close to Mr. Creel are supporting this, and uh, the, the based in, in South Africa will be involved. Kosher Arabia is certified by the Kashmir Division of the Orthodox Union and will work in partnership with the based in kosher under United Orthodox Synagogues, that means in, in South Africa, to provide the highest level of excellence and certification to kosher Arabia. So it seems like it's a combination deal with the OU. It seems good for the, everybody involved, um, the Creels. It seems good for the OU, good for the, for the, for the uh, based in of South Africa, and hopefully good for all Jews. I'm being led now to a story which... I don't want to talk about. <laughs> I don't really want to talk about this at all. Uh, I put it off to last, maybe because I didn't want to talk about it. Let me just say this. I'm not going to tell you who, who wrote this. And, I'm not, and if you find out, that's fine with me. I'm going to talk about it because I think it's important to hear. I think everybody listening to me now should hear the message hidden in these words. But again, I don't want to mention who it is because I don't want to put anybody in an embarrassing position. If you happen to run across it, you will see those words yourself because I'm not making them up. Now, the, what precipitated this was the removal of a kosher certification, and you'll see why they removed the kosher certification. There was a breach of contract uh, with the kosher organization, and they removed totally the kosher certification from this company, which makes a lot, a lot of products. Okay, it's not in this country. That, that much I'll tell you. I read from their letter. Certification was removed because we could no longer guarantee the kosher of their products because of their ongoing non-compliance with regards to non submission of vital ingredient information and labeling requirements. I, I stress a few words here. I want you to hear them. He's, they said, we could no longer guarantee the kashras of the products because of their ongoing noncompliance. Keyword, ongoing. And I leave it to you to analyze that word, ongoing. With regard to non-submission of vital ingredient information and labeling requirements, in other words, the company did not tell the cashless agency about greedy ingredients that they were putting into the products, where they were getting it from. Now, that means that the cashless agency missed it, and that means that the company didn't cooperate. And what the key word, again, that I was stressing is ongoing non-compliance. How long 
has the ongoing been ongoing? They're removing Nashkocha now. This goes to the very heart of our certification process to validate every ingredient that is our Hechsher and has absolutely nothing to do with financial issues. Then they go on to say, we have a zero tolerance policy to non-compliance. So then what is this ongoing non-compliance? Is ongoing a day, a week, a month, a year, five years? If you have a zero tolerance policy for non-compliance, how come it's it's ongoing non-compliance? We continue. This company... I'm skipping the name, have marketed products on multiple occasions. Now, multiple occasions is more than one. Zero tolerance policy, I would think, is one time. Multiple occasions without first submitting their ingredients and kosher certificates to our department. Well, that wasn't caught in a day or a week, maybe in a month, in a year. Ongoing, uh, multiple occasions... How does that go with ongoing non-compliance and zero-tolerance policy? Listen to this line. This is a quote from a letter that I received that was sent out to the kosher community. It says that this company, on no less than five occasions, zero-tolerance policy, right? Zero-tolerance policy to non-compliance. Five occasions, that's not one day, they incorrectly labeled their products dairy or parva due to them not following our compliance requirements of first getting authorization to print their labels, which means they printed the labels without permission. We had to alert the community multiple times to these breaches over the past few years to register. That means that the ongoing non-compliance has been over a few years. Few is three or more. Two is, is you know, is a couple. Th- few is three or more. For the past few years, five occasions, they have been found that they were not, they were not submitting the information correctly and the, and the products were getting the products were being sold and produced and sold non-compliance they said zero tolerance for non-compliance now and the next thing um, goes goes gets worse we've had numerous discussions with them with over the years and they were not prepared to cooperate with us and follow our kosher compliance system. So what's the zero tolerance policy? Ongoing non-compliance. Five occasions over the past few years. Over the years, they're not prepared to cooperate. This is going on in the cautious world today. This is real. What I'm telling you is not made up. I got this not more than a day ago. I don't think it was more than a day. I don't think it was right before Yom Tifor was in Cholamoyda. Was I don't really know, but it's really this is current. Now, last line is just blows me out of the water here. After giving them close to a month to resolve the compliance breach, they ignored all efforts to resolve the situation. They were over years. It says three years. It says over the years. It says past few years. It says. Five occasions, it says, and it says zero tolerance policy. And they gave him a month to resolve the compliance breach? You don't give him a day. Baruch Hashem, I've met people who have a zero tolerance policy. One strike and you're out. And they come in and they say that and they follow up that way. Unfortunately, very unfortunately, what I read to you now, which is 100% true and it's going on, is a sign of the weakness of our system. There's too much money and power and too much tied up in the system, and this has to change. I, I, enough said. 
I wish everyone a wonderful week. This has been your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. If for some reason you want to reach us, we're reachable, 718-336-8544 or 732-534-9363 or Kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. Until next week, wishing you all a wonderful week.